First John chapter 3. We've been working our way through the book of First John. And as we've gotten to chapter 3 last week, we started in verse 1 and we said, As God gives us so many blessings as a result of our salvation, the only way that John could word it here in verse 1 is, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God. We are a child of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. And then he gets into this discussion of the benefits or the blessings of being a son of God. Now, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you're not a partaker in those blessings. But you can be. God offers salvation to all of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing upon us, and then we'll dive into this passage this morning. Our Father, we want to thank You for the truth of Your Word that You give us. Lord, thank You that You guide us through life. We thank You, Lord, for the fact that we can be a son of God. We thank you for the manifestation of your love through your son, Jesus Christ, who died to take our place and bore uh, our sins and penalty upon the cross. What a wonderful God that you are. Now, Father, we pray this morning that as we look into this passage that you would be pleased, Lord, to open our eyes to the truths that you have for us. And Lord, we pray that in everything that is said and done, you will be honored. Lord, we ask that you would uh, keep distractions away. Uh, Lord, as I look into your word and uh, as I preach, I pray, Lord, that you would guide my tongue to say only what you want, no more or no less. And then, Father, we pray that each person sitting under the sound of my voice this morning, Lord, will be able to focus clearly on what your Holy Spirit wants to teach them through these verses. And, Father, that they will not be distracted or caused, Lord, to focus on anything else other than what you want to accomplish today. So, Lord, we yield to you the next um, 45 minutes or so as we look into your word, and we pray in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, what John has done so far in this chapter, we're not going to go back to the first chapter and preview because we've gone over that now several times. We understand where John is going, what he's doing. But as we've gone through this chapter so far, we said, now are we the sons of God, and with that comes this. We shall be like him, in verse number 2, the Bible tells us. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we will understand our Savior better one day. Aren't you glad for that? Uh, New body, new uh, uh, sin is all gone, uh, new way of thinking, everything. That comes with meeting our Savior face to face. We shall be like Him. And then we said in verse number 3, we can live a pure life now. He says, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We have that hope of being in His presence one day, eternal life, glorified state. And because of that, we live pure now. We want to reflect Jesus Christ to the world around us. By the way, if you were not in Sunday school, you should have been here this morning as we go through 1 Peter. We're talking, at this point, we're talking about this principle. 
reflecting Jesus around us in various situations as First Peter has presented those. Uh, that's what we're studying in the adult class anyway. Now, we also said this uh, from verses 4 through 10. Uh, one of the blessings of being a child of God is that we can have a life that is free from habitual sin. And he says some pretty strong things in here about a habitual sin. And if we can live in a state of habitual rebellion, we need to evaluate whether we're even saved or not. Because God's Spirit is indwelling us. And God's Spirit does not lead us to sin. He leads us to live a life that is pure and reflective of Jesus Christ. But in verse number 10, John begins to transition into his next point or his next blessing of salvation of being a child of God. And here it is. We will have a true love for the brethren. Now, John hits this topic a few different times in his book. And so the topic is not new to us. We've already discussed it because John has hit it. But one of the things that John does as he goes through this book and he, he keeps repeating themes is every time he repeats a theme, he adds something to it. And so this morning is no different as we begin reading in verse number 10. He adds to this concept of loving the brethren so much so to where that by the time you get through the book, John has covered a number of things, another, uh, a number of areas that show that we truly love our brethren. And we're going to look at that this morning. Begin with me looking in verse number 10. He says, in this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. He makes the change there. He's moving from this idea of living a life that is free from sin, free from habitual sin, a life that is pure. And he's transitioning now into another manifestation of the child of God is a love for the brother. Now, for those of you that are taking notes, this is the last point that I put up on the PowerPoint. So, Will, you can even change the camera if you want to. We're not going to be using the PowerPoint anymore, but I'm just going to leave it up there. He says in verse number 11, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brother, if the world hates you. One of the blessings or the manifestations of a child of God is to have a true love for the brother. Now, do you all remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, where he talked about, if you love your brother, this is the way it's going to manifest itself. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, just as a reminder to us, he says this, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. One of the manifestations of the true love for God and God's children is a life that is free from stumbling blocks to other believers. So if we truly love our brother, as God has told us to do, we will remove things from our lives that would be stumbling blocks 
to other Christians. Now, that stumbling block could be in my conversation, the way I choose to talk, right? It could be in my refrigerator, that stumbling block. It could be in my cabinet at home. It could be in my car. It could be in my computer. That stumbling block may be in my radio. That stumbling block may be in my attitude. That stumbling block may be in my lifestyle. And we can go on and list a number of things where those stumbling blocks could be that we think we have the right to indulge in or we excuse them away. And God says, not only are you bringing things in that are sinful, but you could be creating a stumbling block for another brother or sister in Christ. And God sees that as a major offense. He covered that in chapter 2. We get into chapter 3, he brings the topic up again. And he even this time brings in Cain. Now, as he repeats the theme of loving our brother, he addresses an additional issue. And, that, and, and, and he goes all the way back to the very first family. And he uses Cain as an example of false love. You see, Cain never accepted blame for his sin. He never accepted the fault. He never admitted that he sinned, so he killed someone that he was supposed to love, and that was his brother. Well, he admitted that what he had done, that's not the issue. The issue is he kept blaming others, and and he would not accept the blame for his sin. And so what he did was he turned around and he killed the one who reflected upon his sin that caused him guilt. This is a serious issue. Because recognizing your sin as your sin is crucial to receiving forgiveness. If we never take full blame for our sin, then we cannot receive forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let me show you. Go back to 1 John 1, please. And look at verse 9. We're in the same book. 1 John 1, look at verse 9. Remember, John keeps rotating back and touching on prior truths and repeating himself. When we went through 1 John 1, we talked about the things that Jesus gives us. And one of the things that he gives us is daily cleansing. And in verse number 9, John says this, uh, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad for that verse? That verse is precious. But there's a word in here that needs to be paid attention to. That's the word confess. The word confess means to agree with someone or to, to agree, in this case, with God. And so with God who sees our sin as sin, if we do not confess, then we're not agreeing with God. And that's not just an admission. Yeah, I did this because I've, as a pastor, I've counseled a number of people. And one of the things that's very frustrating to me is when a person is involved in sin and you know they're involved in sin and you, and you call them on it and you address that sin and they always say, yeah, but 
you don't know how I grew up. Yeah, but, or you don't know what they did. Yeah, but, and then some other justification for their wrong behavior. And as long as that is going on, there's no confession. So it's not just saying, yeah, I did it. But it's understanding that you are a sinner and that it came from the depths of your heart and that God sees it as filthy, rotten sin. And when we confess that and we agree with God, and that's what the word means, when we agree with God, then we can receive forgiveness. And so when we are in, uh, we are in denial of our own guilt 100%, then we can't get that forgiveness. This is a big issue. Because that lack of forgiveness leads to guilt. And that causes people to push away from anything that reminds them of their guilt. We're talking about Cain killing Abel. At the root of all of this is pride, and that pride does so much damage. And we're going to develop this as we work through this message this morning. But when we are living in sin, we don't want to be around God's people. When we're living in sin, we don't want our corruption to be highlighted. When we deny that it is our own fault and we do not confess and we do not agree with God, then we tend to stray away from everything that reflects upon our corruption. Now, this goes contrary to the true love that God has given his children. But see, God has given us a way to keep it all right and pure. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that state, we can have the love of God working out through us. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he did wickedly and Abel did right. John tells us that right here. When we're living in sin, we don't want that to be exposed. Cain literally killed his brother to keep his brother's right actions from reflecting on his evil heart and evil actions. Now, too many times, those who are trying to live a godly life are discouraged or even belittled by those who don't want to live a godly life, but they're challenged by those who do. And so what we do is we attack and we belittle and we see this all around us. Now, in this case here, Cain killing Abel, it's centered around worship. You all remember the story? Uh, God told them to bring a lamb and uh, Cain brought fruit of the ground and Abel brought a lamb for a sacrifice. And so it was in the midst of worshiping. I find that very interesting because there's a lot of corruption that goes on in this concept of worshiping God. God gives us instructions for worshiping, worship in spirit and in truth and the beauty of holiness. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. So the devil attacks areas that are very important to God. One of those areas, one we're going to focus on in a bit in a few minutes, but one of those is the area of worship. If Satan can pervert our worship, then true worship can't take place. God is not honored and Satan wins. And we see that happening here. In Cain and Abel's story, all the way back in the beginning, they both had been given the truth. One accepted and obeyed, one did not. The one who did not was angry because Abel's obedience reflected on his disobedience. 
We see this all around us in this world. Those who want to live in sin do not want to be confronted about their sin, not even by example. Even if you don't say a word, if you just live an example in front of them, they don't want to be confronted with their sins, so they lash out. Do you all remember when Vice President Mike Pence uh, was in the office? Back in 2019, he was speaking at a... Christian college graduation. And I've quoted this before, but I find it very interesting. I think it's very fitting for this morning. And as he stood before those young people who were graduating from college in this Christian college, he says, I'm speaking not so much as your vice president now, but as a brother in Christ. And he told these young people to be ready to be made fun of for their Christian values. And he said, throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to call yourself Christian. It didn't even occur to people that you might be shunned or ridiculed for defending the teachings of the Bible, but things are different now. We live in a time when it's become acceptable and even fashionable to ridicule and even discriminate people of faith. He pointed to a bevy of Hollywood liberals And he said, uh, he spoke about harsh attacks by the media and the secular left. And he said, some of the loudest voices for tolerance today have little tolerance for traditional Christian beliefs. As you go about your daily life, just be ready because you're going to be asked not just to tolerate things that violate your faith, but you're going to be asked to endorse them. You're going to be asked to bow down to the idols of the popular culture. And that was what he warned people of in 2019. It goes back to this same principle here. And we're going to develop that right now. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. I want us to see what Scripture has to say in regards to this important topic. So go back to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a few different passages this morning. In Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse number 18. It would be good if we could read the entire chapter, but we're not going to uh, for the sake of time. But this entire chapter deals with this downward digression of man and how that man who was created in the image of God has become more sinful and more sinful until uh, it gets right to the last verse. And it discusses the consequences of that sin. But in verse number 18, we get an idea of how this downward digression started or starts even within a person's life. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Pay attention to verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them... For God hath showed it unto them. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, I would underline the the words in them and unto them. Because what Paul is doing here is he's showing us that we do know that God exists without anybody saying a word. And he gives us two reasons. Number one, because God is manifest in them. What does that mean? That means this. All of us 
are born with an innate knowledge that God exists. We all have a God-shaped void that is put into us. And we all understand as we grow up that there is a God that exists. We may not understand anything about him. And if you have grown up in a culture that was void of God, you would not know who that God is and you would not understand his gift of salvation, but you know that God exists. And if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, I can tell you right now that deep within your heart, you may know that there is a God, you just don't know Him personally. But you know that you're missing that. God has put that in all of us. And then He says this, For God has showed it unto them. What does that mean? Verse 20 clarifies it. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And if you take these two things, they are without excuse. We know that God exists. We know that innately. It's within us. But also creation cries out for God. You cannot look at creation and its complexity and its vastness. And its structure and the wisdom that's involved and say there is no God. Honestly, evolution is a joke. It is a joke to think that all of this evolved the way that it has. It is absolutely amazing to me to be able to look at creation and understand that that sun is millions of miles away, but yet it it warms the earth. And you know that God did that on purpose. Psalm 19 tells us that as the sun comes up in the morning, there is no language or tongue that it doesn't shine on and proclaim the glory of God. It doesn't matter what language you you speak. You could be in a tribe somewhere in the, the deepest of Africa and never see another nationality or never see another person other than within your own tribe that speaks your language. And yet the sun shines on you every day and you know by that that God exists. And there are stories that missionaries have told about individuals who have said once after they got into a village or into an area, said, we've been praying that God would send someone to tell us about himself. We know that God exists. One, um, I don't even remember what nation it is, but one individual as a missionary related it, it, it to uh, the folks that he was preaching to, said this individual told him, said, I climbed up into the top of the tallest tree and I looked up into heaven. And in his language, he said, please, God, send someone to tell us about you. You know that God exists and all the creation declares it. Now look at verse number 32. I'm sorry, verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They denied God in his glory, and so what happened? They professed themselves to be wise. And in the process of proclaiming themselves to be wise, they left God behind and it literally made them fools. 
The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs. Then we get to verse 32. And you, in between, you have this, in between verse 22 and 32, you have this downward digression of all these sins that men have brought upon themselves and how they've strayed from God and how that God in the process of doing that has turned them over into a reprobate mind because he called out to them and they would reject. And then you get to verse 32 and you have the consequences of sin. It says this, who knowing deep within them, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them not you don't even have to do the sin you just have to be entertained by the sin you take pleasure in even seeing others sin and so what does all of this lead to there is this built-in knowledge that God is one day going to bring judgment Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Deep within all of us, we know one day that judgment is coming. And that judgment, that knowledge brings guilt. That brings guilt. Now, God uses guilt to point us toward him. The devil uses guilt to defeat us and make us feel uh, hopeless. So please understand, guilt as designed by God is a positive thing that leads us to him. Used by the devil, it brings us hopelessness. Look with me at John chapter 3. So just back up a little bit more. John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, look at verse number 18, please. This is the passage where Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And he, as he comes to Jesus by night... Jesus is explaining to him about being born again. And we get to verse 18. And he says this. Jesus speaking. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds be reproved. Remember that word. We're going to see that again. But he that doth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Now, Jesus makes it very plain here what the process is. He said, I am the light of the world in other passages. And so Jesus Christ presents light. He presents truth. And men either go toward the light or they go away from the light. That's what he's saying. In 1 John three thirteen, remember the Bible we just read it. The Bible says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. As if you're living a life that reflects Jesus Christ, the world will hate you. Why? Because you reflect the light of Jesus Christ. That's why. Why does the world hate you? Because you've done them harm? No, you haven't done them harm. It's because your reflection of Jesus Christ shines on their corruption. And your life accents their guilt. If our lives are not doing that, Christian, then we're not reflecting God. 
People respond to the light one of two ways. And this is what Jesus is telling us here. They either do evil or they, they, they do truth. If they are searching for God, they will be drawn to God's truth. And if you're living a life that pleases God, they'll be drawn to you. If they're not willing to give up their sin, they will oppose God and consequently oppose you. Rather than get rid of the sin that causes guilt, they would prefer to get rid of you. That's the story of Cain and Abel. If you're living right, understand it's not you that they oppose. It's your God that they oppose. This is a poor illustration, but it's almost like having a splinter in your finger. And you look at it and you see that it's all infected and all pussy and all of that stuff. And you see that on there. Um, Sorry, I know we're about to have lunch, but there it is. So. And you've got one of two choices. You can either come to the light where you can see what you're doing and pull that out and clean that up. Or you can say, I can't stand to look at it. I'd rather live in darkness so that I don't see it. Only we're talking about a bigger issue. We're talking about your, your, your life. We're talking about your eternity. We're talking about sin. And men either want to keep their sin and run from the light or they want to embrace the light, and as God shines upon them, they begin to clean out the infection and the sin and the putridness of their sin in their life. But if you live that type of life, you reflect on their corruption. By the way, Christian, this is one reason why it is so important that we live a life that is in complete obedience to God. That's God's design is so that you will reflect His righteousness to those around you. Because your reflection of Jesus to those around you could actually draw them to the Savior. But understand, if they're not willing to give up their sin, it will cause them to push you away. And sometimes that hurts. But we have to understand God's deeper plan. Because one day we're going to get out of this world, we're going to be in eternity, right? And we're going to be glad for every moment that we were obedient to Jesus Christ. You realize when you get into eternity, you're not going to have any regrets for full surrender. But you're going to have plenty of regrets where we don't surrender, we don't confess, and we're not obedient. Let me say this this morning, Christian. If you are comfortable with the world and the world's activities, then you are not living a life that displays the righteousness of Christ. Because you can't be comfortable with the world and its activities and reflect Christ at the same time. On the other hand, those of you who are embraced by the world and those who live in sin are comfortable with you, you're not reflecting your Savior well either. Those who are lost in their sin, if they're comfortable with you, it's a sure sign that you're not displaying the righteousness of Christ. There was an old Irish preacher that said it this way one time. He said, the world could not get along with the most righteous man who ever walked on earth. But they can get along with you and me. Do we have no righteousness to reflect on their corruption? We need to reflect Christ. 
Now, let me show you how this is supposed to work. Go to Proverbs 16.6, please. Proverbs 16.6. We've got a few different passages to look at. Proverbs 16 and verse number 6. All the way back in Proverbs, Solomon presents this principle. Then we're going to jump to the New Testament and see how God has it designed to work for us in the period in which we live now. In Proverbs 16, verse 6, the Bible says this, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Now, these are complementary thoughts. They go hand in hand. They're slightly different, but they go hand in hand. But this morning, we're going to focus on the first one. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Do you see that? Truth must be presented and embraced before mercy can be implied. Let me say that again. Truth must be presented and embraced before mercy can be applied. Truth sheds the light on sin. Mercy forgives the sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Do you see how that works? But you have to see the sin for what it is. And oftentimes we are not willing to see our sin for what it is. I'm talking unsaved as well as saved. By mercy and truth. You have to have them. Praise God for mercy, right? Are you all with me? Praise God for mercy. But you will never see the mercy until you have the truth to compare your life to. Go with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. We're in the New Testament now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a familiar passage. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. This is a familiar passage. That bears so much good truth. Beginning in verse 14, he says, But continue thou, as Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. There's the Bible. Which are able to make thee wise unto, what's the next word, church? Salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of what's the next word? God and is profitable for what's the next word? Doctrine and next reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness. Now, like we've pointed out before, this is a progression. Please notice how it works. Doctrine comes from the Word of God. The Word is of divine source. Listen to me. God is your creator. He's the one that made you. He's the one that put within you a God-shaped void. He's the one that uh, reflects himself through creation. This is your creator. He's writing to you a letter because he wants your attention and he wants you to live a life that is pleasing to him. Therefore, he inspired the scriptures. They are from God. This is not man's word. And if you don't like the messenger, please understand, it's not me you don't like. It's God. He gave us 
the Holy Scriptures. And they're profitable for doctrine. Do you see that word? Doctrine. There is the truth. That is the truth of God's word. Now you are either drawn to the doctrine to see where you need to be reproved or you push away from the doctrine because you don't want to see where you need reproved. Because if you see the doctrine, the very next step is reproof. Okay, God, here's the doctrine. You may come on a Sunday morning and you may be preached to. You may come on a Sunday night and you may hear a sermon. You may show up for Sunday school and see the truth of God's word. Or you may be at home reading God's word. And at some point, God puts his finger on a verse and says, here's the truth. This is the mirror. Look at it and see how you compare. And when we drop that plumb line of God's word and we line ourselves up to it, you know what? We see all the areas that we need to be reproved, right? We don't line up. And so what does he offer us? Correction. That's what he offers us. But he goes beyond that. He doesn't just say, I'm going to correct you and bring you in line with the truth of my word. He says, I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm going to give you instruction in righteousness. You know why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's why I want you to be mature. I want you to be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I want you to reflect me on this earth. And so he gave us the way to do it. And you are either going to be drawn to that truth and embrace it. And when you embrace it, mercy is applied and you line up more with that proof or you say, I don't care about that doctrine and you push away. And there are people who belong to God, they're God's children, and they have enough faith in God to exercise faith in salvation, which is all the way back in verse number 15. But when they get to verse number 16, they say, I think I want to pick and choose that truth. I'll obey here, but here's a couple areas, God, that I'm just not willing to give in. And you never get to that point of reproof and correction. You get the reproof, but you don't get to the correction. By the way, Christian, this is one reason that doctrine is so important and that it gets attacked. Sound doctrine is attacked. You can go to a church and find something that will teach, find a church that will teach anything that you want it to teach. You can find a church that will teach about anything. You can find a translation of God's word that will do away with uh, a lot of sin. Whatever you want, it's out there. But you're not coming to the light. You're not coming to the light. Doctrine gets attacked. Let's pervert it. Let's dilute it. Let's do this. Let's do that. And when we're confronted with truth and we're not willing to correct, it brings guilt and darkness to our lives. There it is, plain and simple. Raw and ugly. But even we as Christians are often guilty of the same behavior As unbelievers, when they attack truth and they attack light and they say, silence the Christians, silence God's word, it's hate speech. No, it's not hate speech. It's because we love the truth of God's word and we love the people that we talk to. We want to see them brought into line with God's word because that's the only way we receive mercy. And we need that mercy. We need it. But it's not just the unsaved. Oftentimes we as Christians damage other Christians. When a person is growing in the Lord and we are not, it makes us look bad. And in order to justify our stagnant position, we often attack other Christians. 
Now understand this, none of us are perfect. My staff here is familiar with the phrase that I like to use sometimes. When we minister to people, we're looking for progress, not perfection. We want to see forward steps. We want to see drawing closer as God puts his finger on an item. Slowly, slowly, slowly he leads us to where we are more and more like him. You know, it's like the old sculptor that I told you about a few weeks ago. He can take a piece of marble and turn it into a beautiful statue. And somebody asked him one time, how do you see that in your head? He said, it's pretty easy. You just take your hammer and chisel and you chip away anything that doesn't look like that image. That makes it sound pretty easy, doesn't it? I think I would set down the hammer and chisel and walk away. But slowly, God begins to work until he causes us to reflect his image. So none of us are perfect. And when a new believer or even an old believer gets excited and begins to grow, there are always plenty of areas that are still in need of growth, right? There's plenty of faults that still exist. But their excitement or their growth makes us look bad. And oftentimes there are Christians that find fault uh, in them and remind them of their faults and they knock them down a few notches. And it's not because we want what's best for them. It's because we don't like them reflecting on our stagnant position. There's always faults that exist. If you want to find fault with this preacher, you're going to do it. They're always there all across this room. None of us are perfect, but God is working on us. And sometimes when we're growing in grace, our excitement or our growth makes others look bad. And those people find fault and and remind us of it and knock us down. If we really loved them and cared for them, as the Bible's teaching us, we would encourage growth. And if they surrender, uh, God will work through their faults one by one. God is doing that. He will do it. But we do it to soothe our own conscience. We do it to make ourselves look better. Even if it means we stunt their spiritual growth. That's not true love. That's not biblical love. Often we don't even know that we're doing it or why we're doing it. It comes as a defense mechanism to our guilt. That's what it is. We immediately lash out because their right actions or their right attitudes, even though they're not perfect, they're progressing, and that makes us look bad, and so we attack them. And we we don't even understand how that it affects our guilt and why we do what we do, and that's why God's Word, the Bible tells us, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word works through all that, and as we surrender to God's Word and the truth of God's Word, even our thoughts and our motives begin to change. Isn't that beautiful? God changes your thinking. God can change your motives. God can remove the bitterness. And one day we stand in, we, we stand in judgment. And God sorts through all of these things. He will reveal the truth. He will. But we can be prepared for that day. That's why Solomon said this. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time there for every purpose and every work. Do you see how Solomon said that? God's going to judge the wicked, but he's also going to judge the righteous. He's not just going to look at the works that we do, because that's part of it, but he's looking at our purpose for doing those works. That is important to God, our actions and our motives. 
Look at verse number, go back with me to 1 John chapter 3, please. 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 14 and 15. 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And he's playing off of the example of Cain and Abel. If you find yourself criticizing another person who is trying to do what is right, who is trying to apply the truth that they have been given, you need to evaluate your own heart and mind. You will stand in judgment for that one day. True love always has the benefit of the other person in mind. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? If you truly love the brother, there's no occasion of stumbling in you. Can you imagine a room full of children? Let's take babies. Let's say we walk down to our daycare one day when it's going on and we watch them in there and they're learning to walk. One baby takes two steps. Another one gets up and takes three steps. And the baby that took two steps gets mad at the baby that takes three steps because he took more than him and it makes him look bad. So he trips him. Can you imagine that going on? Sometimes as Christians, we do that, though. Boy, we're learning a lot about how to truly love our brethren, aren't we? Wow. You know, to behave the way of Cain... God tells us is equal to hate for our brethren. Those are not my words. Those are God's word. God refers to it as murder. Friend, this is serious stuff. Why does God speak so strongly against it? Because he sees that the most important aspect of our life is our spiritual growth. Please pay attention. It's not our physical comfort. It's not our emotional comfort. It is our spiritual growth. That is what's important to God. And for a fellow Christian to stunt the growth of another Christian is equal to spiritual murder. These are not my words. These are God's. Read it right here for yourself. Whether it is 1 John 2.10 with stumbling blocks in our lives or whether it's 1 John 3.15 with an attitude of criticism, an attitude of knocking down a brother because he's doing what's right and we're doing what's wrong. Whatever it is, John lets us see as God sees it. This is hard stuff. But if we get a hold of this and we see it as God sees it, can you imagine what this church would look like? If we get a hold of this stuff and truly understand brotherly love, could you imagine what impact we would make on this world? Jesus said, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. First John's telling us what that love looks like. Can you imagine the growth that we would see if we truly embrace this? Could you imagine how much honor we would bring to God in our day-to-day life? And can you imagine stepping into glory And facing God, knowing that we've been obedient.